Good morning, church. It's good to see you. My name is Jace Fonestock. I serve on the elder board here at Christ Community Church. This is the uh, word of the Lord this morning, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unsurpassed greatness, which is declared in the heavens above, is seen in creation all around us, and is manifest in each one of us who have been formed in your image. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die as a substitution for the death we deserve. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you freely extend to us that gives us hope of eternal life with you. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. Please anoint your servant Jeff as he brings your word to us. Relieve us of the cares of this world so that our hearts may be receptive to your word. All glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Jace. Oh, I love that scripture. Don't you? That's what we're doing in this series. We are not waging war according to the flesh. We are demolishing strongholds. Every argument, every pretense in the culture that vaunts itself and sets itself up against the knowledge of God. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the secularist, naturalist worldview and how it's harming our culture. Last week, Daniel knocked it out of the park and talked about spiritualism without Christ. That's dangerous. And today, we're going to talk about the new victimhood morality, the new victimhood culture. In 2013, the ultra-progressivist activist Oberlin College, I think it's in Ohio, posted, postponed all classes after a student reported seeing a member of the Ku Klux Klan just brazenly striding down across campus. In fact, near the African Heritage House on, on the college campus there. A month prior to that, 15, 15 incidents of hate speech graffiti were reported. 15 incidents. When all of this was investigated, however, it turned out that the would-be Klansmen was nothing more than a student who was wrapped up in a white blanket because they were cold. It turns out that there was one guy who perpetrated all the hate speech graffiti hoaxes, and he was asked, when he was asked why he did it, he said he did it as a joke and just to bring some attention to the issue. And when I read that story this last week, I thought, how is it possible that in our culture, we could have hate speech hoaxes. How is that possible? What makes that possible in our culture? I want to tell you what. There's a payoff. There's a perceived reward. People that do that think that they are going to get a payoff. Oberlin College's response to all of this resulted in the college posting a list on its website. This is how they responded to it of what they called microaggressions. Have you heard of this term? Microaggressions that trigger Young victims. So according to them, a microaggression is very simply this. It's, it's defined as any subtle comment or action toward a minority group 
by someone who is perceived to be in the majority group that either intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously, causes emotional distress, harm, or what they call speech violence. Speech violence. Now, we used to just call this being rude. We used to just call this being a jerk, right? In 2012 survey uh, of nearly 5,000 students of color conducted by the University of Illinois, participants listed 800 statements that they felt were microaggressions, microaggression comments made by fellow students that were interpreted to be racist or very highly uh, insensitive. And if you look at the list, I looked at the study, if you look at the list, let me tell you, there are some on there that are highly offensive. There, there are some on there that, as far as I'm concerned, they're racist. They're, they're not inoffensive statements. But the vast majority of statements that I looked at are inoffensive on their face, would be unobjectionable by any definition of words, right? And so what I think this calls for is for us to avoid two extremes. The first extreme is this, a denial of an individual who experiences real or frequent or occasional indignities by someone who is thoughtless or careless in their words. I don't think that it, do, it serves anyone to just deny that this is a reality. Some of you women in the workplace, you've experienced this. You know what it's like to, to experience an indignity by some thoughtless or careless person who says something to you because you're a woman. If you're a member of a minority race, you've probably experienced this on occasion, if not often. So that calls for the rest of us to be very sensitive and very kind and very thoughtful. But the second extreme we need to avoid here is what is called catastrophizing. What is that? Catastrophizing is when we magnify, it's the magnification of a perceived offensive statement, many of which on their face are unobjectionable, inoffensive, and could not possibly reveal the motive of the person who is speaking. Let me give you an example of this. I'll just give you a few that I pulled out of there. This statement is a microaggression. This one, if you say this to somebody, this is a, considered to be a potential microaggression. Where is your family of origin from? What is your family of origin? Now, I asked my wife that when I first met her. And I, I hate to tell you, I really did, because she's kind of a dark-skinned girl, so like she has this beautiful olive skin. And I thought, where is she from? Like, where's her family originally from? Turns out she's German. She doesn't look like any German I've ever seen, but I asked her that question, right? And so, but if you ask someone this question, this can be interpreted as a microaggression. The microaggression meaning is you aren't a real American. You don't belong here. That is not what it means. It just means I want to know what, you, what is your place of provenance. What about this statement? There is only one race, the human race. Have you ever said this to someone? I have. I think I said it last week, actually. There is only one race. Now, this is a biblical worldview. This is a biblical point of view. Everyone is born in the race of Adam. And there are multiple ethnicities, right? So we have multiple ethnic groups, but we have one race of people. Either in the race of Adam or in the new people of God under Jesus, right? But the microaggression meaning of this is a denial is taken to mean a denial of racial identity or ethnic being. No, it doesn't. It's just affirming what the Bible says. How about this statement? America is the land of freedom and opportunity. Have you ever said that to someone? You can't say that anymore. Because the microaggression meaning of that is you as a group are too lazy to make something of your life. 
That's not what I mean. I just mean there are more opportunities here than there are in France. There are more opportunities for you here, greater opportunities for you here than there are in Venezuela. That's all that means. How about this one? Don't judge me by my racist ancestors. I, I am from the South. So I would very much like for you not to judge me by my ancestors, for sure. Listen, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is going to judge humanity, and he's not going to judge people groups. He's not going to judge your identity group. He's going to judge you. He's going to judge me. We are going to stand before God and give an account for the thoughts and the attitudes and the deeds done in our lives. You and I are going to give an account to God, and God is not going to judge you as part of a group identity. So it is true. Don't judge another person by the sins committed by somebody that, that they have nothing to do with. And the list just goes on and on. Microaggression complaints go hand in hand with what sociologists are now calling victimhood culture. This victimhood culture is the new moral system which seeks to supplant and replace the previous moral system. And I just want to give you a quick breakdown, a quick history of what those moral systems are. Here they are. The first one was honor cultures. So honor cultures would be like Rome. Rome, medieval Europe, pre-constitutional America. So those would be honor cultures. What do we know about a high honor culture? Well, in a high honor culture, worth and value are achieved through public exploits and heroic deeds. So you achieve your worth and value through external deeds, heroic things that you do, and people transfer to you an honor, a respect, a reputation. And then one's public reputation in this system is of supreme value. So your public reputation in this system is of supreme value. If someone were to come up to you, if Daniel and I were out in the, the hall here, the grand hall, and I were to come up and publicly insult him, that would, that in this culture, that would be considered a dishonor, a public dishonor, and so we would have to duel right there. Like, we would just have to get it on, like Donkey Kong, right? So, and so one's public reputation on this system is of supreme value, and the moral system has a high tolerance for private slights. If you insult a person in an honor culture, the person in the honor culture that was, that was insulted thinks that you're not even worthy of addressing you're, you're not a person of honor because you did that privately. But if you did it publicly, then you have to fight. That's a fight. That's a gang fight, right? Now, this gave way to what is called dignity culture. What is dignity culture? Well, dignity culture coincided with constitutional America. In a dignity culture, worth and value are inherent to the individual having been bestowed by God. So in our founding documents, when you hear this statement or when you read this statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they have been what? Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Why do you have those rights? Because you are a creature, you're a person who has been bestowed, God has bestowed upon you worth and value because you're made in his image. And those rights don't come from the government and they don't come from the culture, they come from God. And because they come from God, nobody can take them away from you. And that's what a dignity culture is. In a dignity culture, public reputation is really not all that important. It's really not all that important. Because you know your worth and your value. It has been given you extrinsically, given to you extrinsically by God himself. And if it's been 
bestowed upon you, and you have it, and you know you have it, then when someone insults you either privately or publicly, it can roll off. And this moral system offers a high tolerance for perceived insults and public aggression. Whereas honor cultures fiercely protect reputation through violent conformity, dignity cultures fiercely respect and protect the freedom to dissent, the freedom to discuss, and the freedom to disagree. That's called freedom of speech. And those in a dignity culture have thick skin because they know that a person's value, a person's reputation, a person's worth is essentially invested in them, not by the culture, not by the government, but by God himself. And so they're resilient. But this is now quickly giving way to what sociologists refer to as victim culture. What is victim culture? Now, I want to distinguish between victim culture as a moral theory of society and victims in culture. Because there sure are victims in culture. And that's self-evident. And if you didn't believe that by chance, all you have to do is talk to somebody who's adopted or fostered children. Especially foster parents. Foster parents can tell you some pretty horrific stories about little kids being abused in homes. That's why, usually why, the foster care system exists. So you and I, there, we have to acknowledge there are victims in culture. Some of you in here, you've been a victim. You've been a victim of a crime. Whatever that is. But that's different from victimhood culture. Victimhood culture is a moral theory that seeks to supplant the previous one. And this moral theory encourages individuals to take every minor slight or every minor insult and catastrophize it to the worst possible thing. The worst possible meaning. A threat to the well-being and even the safety of a person through human speech. So victimhood culture, in victimhood culture, one's worth and value are contextual. They're contextual. What are they contextualized to? Well, your group. It depends on what group you belong to. So if you belong to one of the victim groups, the recognized victim groups, by the way, they're the ones that get to determine the recognized victim groups, not us. They get to determine them, and they've determined that the Christian faith and people who are of LDS faith don't belong in those victim groups. Okay, that's fine. But if, if you're not in one of those groups, then you don't have status. But if you are, public sympathy and recognition of victim status is at a premium. Is at a premium. This is how you get your status. This is how you get your reputation. One uh, story that I read this last week was of a Christian professor at a Christian college. And this was a very evangelical school, mind you. And he was saying that in his class, he just brought up this issue and somebody raised their hand and shared, one young lady shared a story when she had been victimized. And then he said in the story, it triggered an entire discussion where the whole discussion was then taken over by students in the class trying to one-up each other who was the greatest victim, who was the worst victim of the worst thing. That's what I'm talking about. And that, listen, that weakens our culture. That is weakening our culture. That is the opposite of being resilient. That is not resilient. And so this moral system has a very low tolerance for both public and personal insults. Any perceived aggression, people cannot handle it. And so what is justice on this system? Well, justice is a matter of the offending group or the offended group and their allied victim groups shamestorming the alleged oppressor or offender. And this is called cancel culture. Have you heard of this? I mean, surely you have. Now, I want to say this. There are some things in our culture that for sure need to be canceled. No doubt about it. I mean, there are some things that as I watch them go on in our culture, I go, yeah, I'd like to cancel that. And I'm sure you probably had a similar thought. 
But what we're talking about here are people who identify, self-identify as a victim group and they're allied victim groups. They don't like someone, something that someone says and so it's a mobocracy. Essentially what they do is shut that person down and cancel them. And so they have a very low tolerance for being in a group or in any environment where they have to experience the discomfort or the indignity of listening to an opposing opinion. That makes you weak. If you can't handle opposing opinion, opinions, people who don't look like you or think like you or agree with you, then you're weakened. Resiliency comes through resisting and actually interacting with other human beings who don't agree. So I would argue that despite its pretensions of social justice, victimhood culture is incompatible with the Christian faith. It doesn't bring social justice, and it's incompatible with the Christian faith. I'm going to tell you why. It's the first reason. It offers a mistaken view of justice. It just has a wrong-headed view of justice. On this view, justice is retribution and cancellation. So justice for a perceived wrong or offense is me taking retribution on you through the mob and shutting you down. And there is no mercy, there is no grace, there is no compassion or redemption in this system. How is that different from Christian justice? Well, Christian justice at its core is a system of mercy and justice and grace for the person even who is the perpetrator. For the purpose of redeeming them, not shaming them. For the purpose of Showing them God's mercy and God's grace. In the biblical system, grace and redemption form the core of Christian justice. Now, to be sure, the Bible teaches justice in this sense, what's called retributive justice. What is retributive justice? Retributive justice, both Old and New Testament, is retribution for wrongdoing. So in both the Old and the New Testament, God takes retribution, penalizes people for wrongdoing. This is why we refer to Jesus' death on the cross as the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. The penal part is that he bore our punishment. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him, right? That's what Isaiah 53 says. And so the substitutionary part is he bore that punishment in our place as our representative, a representative of the human race. So both old and New Testament both alike teach that God is going to right the wrongs of the world. God is going to judge humanity. As we said before, God is going to judge us on the day of judgment. But before he does that, he wants to save us. This is the heart of the Christian message. Is that God calls us to repent and to believe and be saved to escape the coming wrath. To escape the coming wrath. So God has a system of justice in which he is going to penalize wrongdoing. He is going to judge the wrong. He is going to set the world right. But God's world-writing justice is his salvation offer to whosoever will. So it's redemptive at its heart. There, it is possible not just to be judged and to experience retribution and to be canceled, but it's possible to be redeemed in Christ. And this is how these systems are different. Now, make no mistake about it, God cares about justice. He cares about social justice. Listen to the words of Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. God says this through the prophet Isaiah to Israel. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. 
Stop doing evil. What's the nature of this evil? What is it? He says, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Bring correction to those who oppress others. And defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. You think God doesn't care about justice? He surely does. Now, Israel in this context is about to lose its country. God is telling them through Isaiah, years before it happened, you're going to lose your country. Your country's gone. And you're going to be hauled off and taken into exile, and there you'll be. And so that's the prophecy. God is warning them that this is going to happen. Why is it happening? For two reasons. The first one, idolatry. The first one is idolatry. They have imported every imaginable God from the surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures into their faith system. That's called syncretism, and they have done this. And so they have denied the worship of the one true God. They've imported all these false gods. That's idolatry, and then God said it's also injustice. It's the fact that you people who are idolatrous and in places of power, you keep those who are poor and who are weak and the fatherless and the widow, you keep them disenfranchised, and God is judging them for it. So you better believe God cares about righting the wrongs. God cares about setting the world aright. But look at the heart of Jesus. Look at his heart. What does he say in Luke 23, 33 through 44? Uh, 34. Now this is not the last words of Jesus. These are not the last words of Jesus on the cross. These are the first words of Jesus on the cross. This is the first thing he says as soon as they pin him to the cross with the nails. This is when they arrived at the place called the skull. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, he cried out, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Now you better believe God is going to hold these men accountable for what they did to Christ. Christ is the ultimate victim, the ult- suffered the ultimate injustice by people who were in places of power, who were oppressors. Christ is the victim, but Christ is also victorious. The Christian faith is a message about Christ's victory through the cross and on the cross, not about his victimization. And notice what he says. Notice what his heart out. Jesus' first instinct is to cry out to the Father to forgive these people for this horrific crime, this horrific injustice of murder of the innocent, the most innocent man who ever lived. This is the heart of Christian justice. God is going to judge. God is going to punish sin. That day is coming. But before that day comes, the invitation is to all. Whosoever will, come, be saved, be forgiven of your sins, be washed clean in the blood. So as Christians, we seek God's justice by bringing the gracious and redemptive love of Jesus to an unjust world. Number two, second reason why victimhood culture is incompatible with the Christian faith is that people are damned in this system into predestined group identities ensuring perpetual discord. In this system, people are just forever damned into these predestined group identities, ensuring unending, never-ending discord. If one's ethnicity or sexual orientation or preference or class or gender, identity, if those associations are viewed as the defining things of your life, then we can never unify around the things that matter most. Our oneness, despite our distinctiveness, is God's vision for the human race. I'll say it again. Our oneness, despite our differences, 
is God's vision for the entire human race. And victimhood culture seeks to resegregate people into what are called safe spaces. Have you heard this? What is a safe space? Well, it's a place where you never again, again, you never have to experience the indignity or the discomfort of encountering someone who isn't like you or doesn't think like you or doesn't agree with you, has a contrary opinion. That's not a safe space. That's a weakening space. By contrast, the Christian vision for humanity is so different. Look at this, what Paul says in Galatians 3, 28. He says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free or male, uh, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Jesus Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, don't misinterpret that passage. He's not saying there's no such thing as a Jew. There's no such thing at all as a Greek or male or female. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those divisions, that, those things that used to divide you, those things that used to keep you segregated, they're no longer walls. They're no longer barriers to your fellowship. Christ in his blood has demolished, has knocked down these walls to fellowship. So in the Christian church, we, more than anyone on earth, should be able to fellowship with people of every language, every tribe, every color, every ethnicity, the Christian church is supposed to be a place where the things that used to segregate us are broken down and now we come together at the cross and in the person of Christ. Notice what it says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. Paul says this, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I want to urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you've already received with all humility and gentleness. It takes humility and gentleness. Social relationships take humility we have to be humble toward one another. We have to be gentle. We have to come to each other with a gentle, sensitive touch. And he says, with all patience, bearing with one another, we have to bear with one another. We have to put up with each other, and we have to bear each other's weaknesses and carry each other's burdens in love, in the love of Christ. This is making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Why do we have to make every effort? Because it takes every effort. It takes every effort to maintain the unity of the church the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. There is one Lord Jesus, one historic Christian faith, not many, one baptism that saves you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, whatever your differences were, you Jew and Gentile, now you come together, male and female, slave or free, wherever you came from, whatever your background was, now we are in Christ and we are one in Christ. And this vision is the only hope for humanity. It's the only hope that we have for unifying humanity in the person of Christ. God's vision for the human race is not to endlessly resegregate us back into safe spaces where we never have to experience the discomfort or the indignity of listening to another person who has a contrary opinion or who isn't like us. Nope. This victimhood culture runs counter to God's agenda and God's plan to unify all races, all tribes, and all nations in worship to him at the cross. So we simply choose as believers not to allow non-essentials to divide us. Third reason why victimhood culture is incompatible with the Christian faith, number three, is it offers a wrong solution to a misconstrued problem. Well, it starts with a problem that's not the problem. 
On victimhood moral theory, what ails society, listen to this track, what ails society is oppressive relationships. Bingo, there it is. That, that, now there are oppressive relationships in the world. There are 38 million slaves that still exist in countries around the world today. And ministries like the International Justice Mission are working tirelessly to free those people. So you better believe there are oppressors in the world. That's for sure. No doubt about that. But, but that's not the original sin. For victimhood culture, oppressors in a society, that's the original sin of humanity. And that, of course, as many of you know, is Marxism. That's the Marxist view of, of human government and humanity. And that point of view which has dominated every communist regime in modern history. And this moral theory is the result of a secularist, ungodly, Marxist point of view which has dominated not only communist regimes, but is now beginning, we're beginning to see it emerge within our own culture. On this theory, human beings are nothing more, as we said in week one, than matter in motion. You're just a thing. You're a material. There's no real soul. There's no real you. There's no God on this theory. The human societies only have two groups, those who oppress the peasant class and the peasant class, right? The oppressed. And justice then is a matter of the peasant class rising up and overthrowing those who are in power. But then what? Well, you become the new oppressor class, right? And that is in order to eradicate all forms and every trace of inequity within society. Economically, now Karl Marx was an economist, and this is his theory, and this is the linchpin. Economically, this is accomplished by transferring all wealth from a society and all the means of production, wealth production, to the state, to the government, so the government can then redistribute it to the individual, and everyone can equally have all their needs, every need they've ever wanted, ever met. And the expected outcome of this worldview is utopia, which is exactly what we, how we think of the USSR, right? Utopia, like days of bread lines just waiting to get their hands on one piece of bread. That was utopia. No, it wasn't. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. This social experiment has been tried. It has failed. It failed. It failed human beings. And the results have been catastrophic for human dignity, for human worth and value, and for productivity. Not to mention the death toll. Daniel mentioned last week the horrific death toll of the secularist Marxist nations. So victimhood cultures devalue, diminish, and dehumanize men and women. If God says you're an image bearer, that's what a human being is. He made them both male and female in his image. But the person who believes in this theory says, no, there's no such thing as a man or a woman. There's no such thing as a male or a female. You've just dehumanized a human being. Wrong. So his proposed solution to an alleged problem is just wrong-headed. Here's the real problem and the real solution. I want to read it to you. Romans 3, 21 through 24 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the world writing salvation and justice of God, has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. This is the sworn testimony. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, since there is no distinction. Now, you and I have many distinctions, but when it comes to this, we have no distinctions. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. 
and they are justified, which means declared in the right, in God, in right standing in God's courtroom, freely by his grace, a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the right problem, and this is the right solution. So what's the problem? The problem is, it doesn't matter what group you belong to. It doesn't matter what your group identity is. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are or where you came from or what your family history was. What matters is that you and I are sinners. We are sinners and our sin has offended, is an affront to the holiness of a holy and righteous God. And God has revealed his righteousness, his world-writing salvation. And what is it? That you and I can be forgiven. That before he judges us in the final analysis of our lives, and before we are separated from God for eternity, God offers us salvation. The righteousness of God in Christ. And so victimhood culture supporters are actually right about one thing. There are only two groups. But it's not oppressor and oppressed. The two groups are saved and unsaved. Born again and not born again. Child of God or not a child of God. You have either received Christ and experienced his life-changing salvation and the life of God's son or you haven't. You're lost forever. Here's how Jesus said it. He who has the son has life. But he who does not have the son stands condemned already. I want to close with Jesus' scripture that he read in his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown of Nazareth. It's in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He said this. He's talking about oppression, and this is how he thought he would solve it. This is the scroll of the prophet was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Will you pray with me? Bow your heads, close your eyes, please. God's spirit right now is present in this room, in this place, in this church body today, in power and in the gospel to change our status, to change us from not children to the children of God, to change us from unsaved to saved, from lost to found, and from victims to victorious in Christ. From languishing to experiencing true life in the Son and real joy in the Son. And there's good news for those of you who are spiritually poor, those of you who know it. You bring nothing to the table, nothing. You come with empty and open hands. You have nothing to bargain with. And the good news for those who know they're spiritually poor is there is salvation and it's been provided for you. And there's good news for those who are held captive. You feel held captive today? Who feel trapped in sin or imprisoned by a habit or failure? Or feel like you're carrying a weight of abuse or pain that someone put on your life and you just can't carry it anymore? And there's good news. Jesus sets the captives free. Will you receive Will you receive his freedom today? And there's good news for those who are spiritually blind, who try to figure it out and follow their own way. But like a blind person fumbling around in the darkness trying to find your way, you can't. 
And Christ brings the light of God's truth. He brings the light of the revelation of the way of salvation. Will you receive it today? And for those who are oppressed by the devil, devil, you may be sitting here this morning and you feel like there is a stronghold. There is something you've allowed into your heart or your life that has a grip on you and you can't, you just can't shake free. Jesus brings deliverance for captives. Will you receive right now in Jesus' name deliverance from captivity? Will you embrace Jesus the Messiah? And this, we proclaim, is the year of Jubilee. This is the year of our Lord's favor. This is the year of his grace. In Jesus' name, we all said amen.